Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 38 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about Meet Me in St. Louis, that 1944 Judy Garland classic. Another vignette movie, Caroline. We, we had this kind of before with Holiday Inn. Here we are again with a year in the life of the Smith family of St. Louis. I was so surprised that this one was directed by Vincent Minnelli because, of course, I mean, we know the last name Minnelli, obviously, with old Liza. And we know that Judy Garland her mom so i was like so surprised when i saw that i was like oh my gosh is this gonna be where they met and like how they actually got together and yes it It really was that they met on this movie and they married soon afterwards that just shocked me i don't know why because it was like it's like you're like like prying into someone's like private life it was like oh my gosh i'm like peeping on when they met it felt so crazy to me this movie maybe more than anyone that we've covered has a lot of interesting behind the scenes info on it and mainly because because of Judy Garland and and you know she's a young woman at 22 at this point already she's 5 years after Wizard of Oz she you know she doesn't even want to do this movie because she doesn't want to play a teenager you know she she has to like really be talked into it but, you know uh, Minnelli actually has to kind of sit him down and her mother's involved and like has to talk her into playing this teenager again and it's actually the last time that she'll play a teenager on screen uh in her career but yeah she she wanted to be a starlet and she wanted to be regarded as such on screen you know yeah so there's a lot of turmoil behind the scene there not the least of which is that she meets falls in love with and 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 has a baby and marries and she's married to him for five six years uh, uh vincente manelli they were already living together by the time he's doing the pre uh, post-production editing work on this movie they announced or she announced that they were a couple going to get married at the new york premiere of this movie so very wow. fast and and liza's born a year later after this movie comes out so yeah very fast relationship kind of thing and he's 19 years older than her at this point that's the part that always makes me like oh <laughs> yeah she's 22 he's in his late 30s and wow I, you know it's i guess it was a different time but it also you i feel like we still hear these stories today you know except for now when you hear it it's always more of a the guy gets called out rightfully so i think for like a power uh, you know manipulation kind of thing yeah it's kind of crazy it's very crazy very and also i realized that you know in my head judy garland kind of stops aging at dorothy i don't know she's just always a young girl and and in my head she just never really gets as old as even as she is in this film uh yeah you know i still saw her as dorothy in this film you know she looked like dorothy with like a makeover you know her her face still felt the same her voice still sounds the same to me it's just that like her makeup is more grown up it feels like in this movie than when she's you know kansas dorothy she passes away in 1969 so she lives another 25 years after this but in my head she doesn't like you know what i mean like it's like she's just kind of she i feel like she's out of the hollywood world in my like what i would watch the canon of movies i would watch so it's just it's just it's just wild to me to see her even even a little bit more grown up well she's already her troubles with drinking and uh, drugs and her stress and her anxiety is is already starting here uh i mean she she delayed production on this movie i think she missed like a total of like 14 days of the shoot so the production was pushed back like almost like more than two weeks of like actual filming days because she just wasn't turning up to set there were complaints about her uh, especially by um mary Ast- 
Lancaster, who plays her mother in this movie, had to come to her trailer regularly and scold her for being selfish and delaying the delaying the cast and that everyone is waiting on her and that, you know, sure, it's her right as being the star of the movie, but also, you know, there's hundreds of people waiting on her kind of thing because she was just already sore out of it. At 22, she was burnt out and, and just having all of these kind of personal demons behind her. It's like 1950, just six years after this, she's not even 30 yet, and MGM cuts her loose, citing her personal problems as just not being able to work anymore, as not being mm. someone that they can use in a reliable way anymore. Imagine, I mean, it's Dorothy yeah, before it was Devon, you yeah. know, and it's Judy, right? And it's it's just kind of crazy. It's it's true that you just never know what's going on uh, in someone's life, right? We hear about that on Facebook all the time. Right, right. But then, you know what, in, in reading through the trivia for this one, the amount that she was molded by Hollywood, the my skin crawled when I was reading about the idea that she had these like nose discs that she had to wear in order to like make her nose look more turned up or that she was wearing like dental caps and and just all these things like I know, of course, that you do certain things, but like to make your nose look more turned up. I just I don't know, like the idea of having a nose disc in my nose. Like, I don't know. It made me feel so grossed out that they made her feel like if only you just looked a little bit more attractive. If let, Let's just like manipulate your face like so much. Because these days, I mean, there's so many different actors who, I mean, gosh, especially male actors who, I mean, for God's sake, their noses look like they were actively in a fight 10 seconds ago. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know there's like this perfection version of Hollywood, but there's also like it's okay to just look like yourself on some level. You know, you can have a gap in your teeth now. You don't have to be manipulating your face like this. I don't know. It just it was cringy to me. Extremely cringy. I, and it was not something I ever realized before. You know, I, I've never really done a deep dive into her personal life in any way, shape or form. So it was definitely eye opening to me to read about her own personal thoughts. And it's one of the things that attracts her to Manelli and draws her to him romantically is this is she's a she goes on record as saying this is the first movie she's ever made where she felt beautiful and that she had mm. been she had been handed this body dysmorphia or, or you know was made to feel that way for so long you're not attractive enough you're not pretty enough you you need to you need to work kind of thing but this is like the first time she actually that's why they end up doing like four or five films together because she feels that he's the only one who captures her and makes her feel beautiful which is a powerful powerful thing if you're in her shoes just in thinking about how much you know i said manipulation of like their faces and stuff but like same with i know with like wizard of oz they like bound her chest to make her look younger and so that she didn't have any chest at all and you know even in this movie like watching them on screen playing with like the girdles and the corsets and like all that kind of stuff is like oh my gosh how much women go through and then i guess i just when i read the phrase like nose disc i was like no my god like yeah. i just can't imagine like how much how could you like walk around and pretend like you're like yourself when you're when you're being like you know just molded so harshly oh my god when that scene comes up in the movie i was i was reminded mm. of the torture that women go through the binding torture and it's even in my notes here i have a, I have one of my questions is why do women subject themselves to girdles and corsets it's it's just medieval torture i don't i don't understand it i would never it's... i would never ever want my lady to to have to do that to herself I, you know why? I'm not doing it. I mean, uh, you're getting you're getting my little caker belly bod. You know, I'm not putting on a corset. So I would never ask anyone else to do that. It's just insane to me. So extreme. I mean, when you see that she can barely breathe, like, right. I mean, of course, she women these days, they still do it. I mean, right. you know, we still have waist trimmers and all this stuff. They just give it a different name. But thanks to the Kardashians, it became like, I mean, there's actual ones that you wear just for working out. They're like sweat resistant. You can't even breathe when you're just trying to work out like just oh god i'm very proud of my lungs i want them to be able to fully inflate uh i want to be able to bend over and pick things up without you know being snapped back uh you know into place like she's in this movie i mean and I, you know obviously she's playing it up for some physical comedy which again is not something i you know she she's got a range that beyond her voice that i don't think we at least I don't think about from Wizard of Oz because she's just this young girl ingenue with a beautiful voice, you know, wide-eyed discovering the world in Wizard of Oz. But she's doing some really good acting in this movie. She's doing some really fun 
physical comedy bits like like when she's moving around with the girdle and having to constantly like kind of bring herself back up her relationship with 2d as like an older sister slash mother figure the romance angle which is not something we got to see from her in wizard of oz there's all she's doing a lot of grown-up acting things here so it was kind of revelatory for me to see her in this role if you haven't seen any of the movies with judy garland and mickey rooney you should watch a couple of those i've seen a handful of different scenes and whatnot from from those movies and they're all like musicals and stuff like that. So you kind of get a chance to see her in that more, I don't know, like gregarious kind of personality, I guess I want to say, than, than you got to see her in Wizard of Oz. Uh, I, I actually haven't. And uh, after watching this, I feel like I need to pay a little bit more attention to her career because I, I was really impressed at what she was doing here. And, and I love Wizard of Oz. But I was never blown away by her acting. When I think about why I like Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland's acting in particular is not what has ever drawn me to that. But here, for me, that's the big hook. I mean, if if you don't have her acting here, yes, she has a couple of songs that become, you know, uh, timeless classics that come out of this movie. But I, I think it's her acting that really sells you. If you like this movie, it's because of Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien and their acting. Let's talk about the movie a little bit. So it's actually based on a series of short stories by a woman named Sally Benson. Sally had originally published in the New Yorker magazine under the title 5135 Kensington. It was a series of short stories that she published over time, all under that that heading. It told the story of uh, really her own life story of her family from St. Louis that actually did move to New York City and never actually went back to see the fair. Um, but this was her family's story. It was eventually later encapsulated in the novel called Meet Me in St. Louis. So a lot of the stuff that you see in this movie from Tootie and uh, Agnes, those were actually her own memories and her sister's experiences, uh, really her life story. Um, it was adapted by Irving Brecker and Fred F. Finkelhoff. And as you said, it was directed by uh, Vincente Minnelli. So <laughs> I'm never going to call him that. <laughs> Vincente, you got you to do the whole I finger thing. Really you can't know. really do it. I, I yeah. think without an Italian background, I think I'm not allowed. I think that would be not right. Um, this one was released November 22nd, 1944 in St. Louis and November 28th across the United States. Just a couple days later. I mean, what did you think about this one budget versus box office wise? It was a big hit. It was other than Gone with the Wind. It was. Like, were you surprised? No, uh, no, <laughs> no, because in, in, this is like the 40s. The war is going on. I think there was a huge appetite for musicals. Th- this is a time when you could still, you know, do a, a romantic comedy musical, which is not something you could do now. You could do vignette movies. You can't do that now kind of thing. You know, we're not quite at the end of the golden age of Hollywood. And so I, I, I think people were probably hungry for some escapism. You know, of 1944, where it, the war is... It, it, you know, we're still a year away from it being over. I imagine morale was probably horrible uh, overall. Very sad, especially going into Christmas time. Who doesn't want to go escape to to 1903 St. Louis with Judy Garland and listen to some great music and and think of simpler times when the world wasn't on fire? I was mainly surprised because we had had such stinker movies uh, coming before this one oh, that sure. I was like, oh, please let this one be. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> been successful. Well, and when you think about movies like like it's a wonderful life which is a bomb when it comes out right it's a wonderful life does not do well at the box office it's not until many years later that it becomes a uh, a beloved you know staple of the holiday season this is a banger out of the gate it's it's mgm's it was the second highest or fourth highest grossing movie of 1944 overall it was mgm's second largest movie other than gone with the wind and it was their most profitable musical of the 1940s like this is a big movie for mgm they they hit it out of the park with this one this was a a certified hit the one line plot summary is kind of hilarious to me because i mean i guess it just leans into your vignette sort of comment it's young love and childish fears highlight a year in the life of a turn of the century family I would have no idea what the heck this movie was about. Well, but if you were to explain it, though, it, this is this is the, the the uniqueness of this kind of movie, kind of like Holiday Inn. And I just I don't see how you make this movie really nowadays. I don't think you could make this movie nowadays because what is the plot? You're you're following the daughters of the Smith family as they move through summer through spring. 
leading up to the World's Fair, okay, you know, they're they're trying to get married, they're trying to fall in love. It's vignette style. It's, okay, in the Halloween section, but the Halloween section doesn't really affect the Christmas section. The Christmas section doesn't really affect the arrive at the World's Fair section. They're all kind of, like, encapsulated. One's not necessarily dependent upon the other. It's it's like a year in the life. It's, it's exactly what it's it is. It's a year thing. in the life. It's it the 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 plot is we're going to follow this family in particular. We're going to follow the daughters as they try and find love at the end of their teenage years, uh, and and listen to at the end of their teenage years and listen to <laughs> Meet Me in St. Louis a lot. That's I mean, so funny. <laughs> I, I, I gotta tell you, as as a dad, I really connected with Papa Smith here when he comes in and he is just sick and tired of hearing uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which by this point in the movie is only like. Like 10 minutes in we've already heard the song like seven times i guess i get it let's dance to hoochie coochie i'm all about it yeah just a disgruntled lawyer who's you know sick of people singing meet me in st louis the fair's not for another seven months i really connected with him immediately on a real dad level what what did you think of the cast besides uh judy i mean margaret o'brien as tootie um you know was hilarious i thought that she really made the movie for the most part i mean she had such personality she was just like her lines made me think of love character like Louise from Bob's Burgers now where yes. she's just so like outlandish and says these wild things and especially for the time you wouldn't think they would write a little girl like this but I'm sure that's how little girls really you know that's more realistic I loved it I thought she was really funny I didn't like her very much when you had played the little clip for me and she was just <laughs> wailing and I was like I do not need this child in my life but she grew on me completely I still didn't like that scene when she was wailing but for the rest rest of the whole thing i mean she had the majority of the of the most perfect lines i thought yeah this is a movie where she really steals the scene this is judy garland and her movie to lose everyone else really feels like a supporting character in this movie you know ostensibly i mean we're really following esther judy garland's character and rose uh, lucille bremer's character because they're the two older sisters trying to find love but the way it plays out and when you think about it and when you remember it, and especially in particular the christmas section of this movie for our christmas podcast you're really talking about margaret o'brien's tootie it, because she's the one who is expressing the family grief best over leaving you know and and for her it's personified by the snowman village but it's this idea of i don't know the end of innocence the 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 leaving everything you know those are difficult concepts especially when you're five you're you know or five or six i can't believe she's only five the things that she says the digging the ditch so that she can grab the lady's leg like the whole thing I oh just... when she says i hope it's a knife well you know when she's talking about what present she wants oh my god i laughed out loud that's I mean, <laughs> like tootie is like i wish tootie was my kid that would be fantastic so <laughs> She's very funny. Margaret O'Brien actually receives a special Academy Award in 1944 for this. And she had had already been a well-worked actress by this point. And she was only seven when this movie comes out. She was honored by the Academy for being the best juvenile performer in Hollywood, primarily because of this movie, but more also honorarium of her work up to that point. Everyone knew that this was a kid to watch because she was just going to kind of pop off the screen. She's still alive, uh, actually, Ms. O'Brien. She's uh, 84 years old now. But never really, like, moved into adult roles, which which was, no. like, wow, shocking. But I guess when you're, like, such a little pip, like, you know, it may be hard to shake that little persona. How about the supporting cast? So, you know, it's interesting. Lucille Bremer, this is her first role. Reading about the movie a little bit, MGM was treating this really like a screen test for her to see if she would pop off screen. She had previously been a rockette. And so this was her kind of big chance to see what she could do on screen. Did it work out for you? Would you go watch a Lucille Bremer-led joint based on her work here as Rose? I don't know. I mean, I kind of think she was overshadowed by Judy, so it's kind of rough. Between Judy and Margaret, I don't know that that old Lucille had that much of a shot. I This is going to sound really silly, but I really disliked her hair. I did not like all that mess on the top of her head. With all those like weird bang curls. So, like, for me, I was, I was always like, oh, Rose. Like, she just always seemed like the sister you didn't want to be friends with. You wanted to be friends with either Tootie or Esther. <laughs> You know what it is? It's also like when boys come around, it's they may show up for Rose, but once they meet Esther, 
like Rose kind of gets shuttled. There's a, a similar dynamic in the sisters of Downton Abbey also. One may show up if like was a pen pal with the Rose character and then they show up and they meet the sisters and they're like, oh, hello, Esther. Like, yes. how are you? Kind of thing. And Rose becomes invisible. Uh, yes. It's very much that vibe, which is funny because Judy Garland does not like Lucille Bremer. Doesn't want her in the movie. Doesn't want her attached to this picture. Doesn't want to have to compete with her in any way. She's, she sees her as like this new upstart who's trying to like replace her because Judy Garland, all of 22, is feeling, you know, like a veteran of, of yeah, <laughs> washed up and kind of, you know, like over it. And, you know, they're bringing in this Lucille woman to try and replace me kind of thing. So she, she actually tries to stonewall uh, Ms. Bremer and her career at every chance she's given uh, throughout the filming of this movie. Again, really interesting to get that glimpse behind the camera. You know who like who got like a lot of people's like dander up was Tom Drake as John Truitt. I, there was like a lot of anxiety around this guy in my house. I'm watching this man, especially my son. Like he was, he was so angry with John, like a lot of the time and like really felt like, like he was just not a good guy. Well, especially in the Halloween scene, Tootie comes off as being very believable as as out of left field as it is. But when you see how John kind of takes it and kind of is even smiling at Esther as she's hitting him. <laughs> the hitting stuff was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it also kind of gives you pause like this guy is a freaky deke. Like, you know, <laughs> he enjoyed getting her ire up. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of the time, too, right? He's a, a little swashbuckler, right? Well, but we see Han Solo do the same thing to Princess Leia. It's like, yeah, be cruel to me. I like it. Yeah, that, that kind of attitude. But he is very forward. I mean, even in the first scene where they go to turn the lights off together, I don't know. I felt like yeah, at that time, there's like, something about him, right? There, there's, I know a little, what you mean. there's something a little predatory about him for sure. Like, you know, like leave the house, man. You shouldn't be here after dark. Like, this feels wrong for this time. <laughs> you know, don't make you know katie come out and start whacking you or grandpa joe come out and start whacking you with like you know a, a rolling pin or something the, all the teenage business of like trying to peacock around you know when the girls run out on the porch and try to act cool about walking out there like mm -hmm. i liked all of that i like that they were like above board with that like that that they showed the girls like being like that natural kind of thing right. because normally in a movie that you know could have been they could have taken this a little bit more seriously and they could have just had them walk out very prim and proper and not sort of show the whispering to one another and right. the fact that they were like posing but then he's out there posing in the yard with his pipe like <laughs> obviously he's doing his like i'm a very mature man like check out me over here it's all like so funny to see like some things never change exactly though but it's still the same right it's generations oh, later yeah. and it's still you know the form changes you know maybe it's a car you know there was a generation where it was like you know you know smoking right out, you know, uh, Sandy with her cigarette and leather in Greece totally. kind of thing, you know, and or on the uh, the kind of peacocking at the start of Greece. You know, it's it's generational. It, this is how boys and girls get together at that point, you know. I just liked that they were actually like kind of like whispering about it to each other, I guess. Or even the behind the scenes on a phone call. Like she's got to say all the things mm -hmm. that have to be said in order to lead him to propose. Like I think that's what made this movie successful, actually, is like all of those like more real life. Very relatable moments. Yeah, yeah. Well, like what are teenagers actually talking about or like right. joking about or whatever? I think that that part, even though obviously this was so long ago, I think I mean, it's still here today. You still do the same things. You know, and I want to I want to credit, especially coming off of movies like Surviving Christmas and Deck the Halls, these movies written by committee that we've talked about. This is a, this is a woman's story of her own youth and her own experiences, like kind of coming of age. All they have to do is just translate that to the screen and, le and let women who are and, and, and men who are just around that same age say the words that they've already experienced probably in their real life not too long ago, you're going to get some natural magic there, I think, some realistic magic. It reminded me a lot of Christmas Story when when we were reading about how, you know, this was actually a, a more of a true life story. Mm -hmm. And so you got those little moments like the little boy hiding under the kitchen sink or you got just like those little things that felt very real or the mom never, ever getting a hot meal. Those types of moments were in this, too, where you really got like that, like this is how an actual family would behave with each other. When the dad's like, does everybody know that she's expecting a phone call from this guy? And 
<laughs> he's like the only one. What a night! What a great bit to commit to that he goes around the entire table. Because yes. he could have just done it once, and we all got the point that everyone knew it. But it, no, no, they they're like, let's take the time, and we're going to go around, and we're going to hammer home that he dad is out of the loop. Even the part where he's like, Tootie, remind me to spank you later. Right. And it's like so just like nothing. Like there's no like there's no energy or like feeling behind it. It's not like I'm actually angry at you. It's just you you deserve a spanking. So the end. Like it was just all so matter of fact. And he's just so not a part of the day to day. Well, let's talk about Leon Ames here. He's playing Alonzo Smith, uh, Papa Smith, the dad. This is the kind of these are the kind of roles that Leon Ames played throughout his career. The kind of gruff father figure or older guy who you know heart of gold you know uh hard shell mushy inside kind of thing and it really works for me in this movie especially with so many daughters of different ages and you know the flustered dad is such a well-worn trope but i think he really hammers it home of i'm the man of this house while totally acknowledging he's got no power you know and and ultimately even the one decision he makes without consulting them that he's going to move the family to new york he gives into his mushy insight he sees the devastation it's you know bringing to his daughters in that 2d scene because he's watching from the window as she's decapitating her snowman village and esther has to go out and console her kind of thing i think it's so on pitch for what we would want a dad to do in that situation he chooses what's best best for the family and for his daughters over maybe his own career ambitions um, I like that. That that resonates with me. So it feels like a loving family, like yes. which which means like not every moment is is perfect in any form or fashion. It's real. You know, there's more there's more. I hope there's a knife in real families. That's what I think endears the movie for most people, I believe. So this was not a movie you had seen before, right? No, no. Only just because it kept coming on to different screens on other movies we were watching that I was like even super aware of it, I guess. Right. And, and not a movie. I mean, I had heard of this movie, but it wasn't a movie I knew other than Judy Garland was in a movie called Meet Me in St. Louis. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know the music out of it. And I didn't know its Christmas status. You know, it comes up in Family Stone, like you mentioned in our last episode, and because it comes up in Deck the Halls also. And it's it's the scene that spurs Matthew Broderick into trying to get his family back. But I didn't realize Trolley Song and Have Yourself a Very Little Christmas come out of this movie. That was a wonderful little surprise for me because they're both very different songs but again when you have a vignette movie that's doing a year in a life thing you can have a springtime song like or a summertime song like trolley song and have yourself a very little christmas in the same movie and they both feel wonderful i i especially have yourself a merry little christmas that one for me i think might be like one for for my heart it's like when that one comes on i'm like singing along and like also like my heart's like starting to feel like all the all the emotions of christmas like real hardcore Man, I could listen to her sing forever, but that song goes on for about two and a half minutes. And so I, I don't know. Maybe we'll play the whole thing at the very end. Maybe that's how we'll end. Uh, and I'll just let it play at the end of the podcast. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, Judy, th- that song is written for this movie. It's written for Judy Garland. She actually refused to sing the original lyrics, which she deemed to be too grim. The original lyric was, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Uh, she she and uh, Manelli. really harsh. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> So her, Minnelli, and Tom Drake, who plays John Truitt, 
go to the composers and they're like, no, we can't sing that to Margaret O'Brien, this little five, six year old. We can't. That's my Lord. So they actually uh, they change it. And so the Stars Create Opposition inspired songwriters Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine to form the more optimistic lyric. Let your heart be light. That wouldn't actually be the last changes made to that song. Frank Sinatra goes on to record it uh, a, a couple of years later, or more than more than a decade later. He actually changed the lyrics even more to the version that is the standard version now. Uh, you can look at the comparison, but even in the revised Judy Garland version, there is some finality about how people that have been in your life you're not going to see again, uh, mm. or you know you'll see them maybe one more time. He his version becomes the standard that we kind of all know, unless you listen to the this Judy Garland version, where it's all very forward looking and optimistic that, you know, as in olden days, but made those days come again kind of thing. It's it's optimistic about the future that you may see your loved ones again and that we'll continue to have, you know, good years together. Um, but yeah, what a you know, a kind of a dark original lyric, you know, it may be your last. Wow. I mean, the girl's already, she's already feeling bad. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, and I feel that way about the song because they have that, you know, if the fates allow part, even that like will get me like kind of choked up about like, you know, like, you all together again like and that's enough for me to feel that way that like if they had the, all these other parts where you continuously were like this may be your last or like you know the, remember the olden days like all this i mean i feel like i would be really like I, this would be a rough song yeah yeah, I mean, as is, she goes out and takes a bat to, or or a cane, she steals the cane and starts whacking heads. Did you notice that some of the snowmen were, like, hollow inside? I thought that was, like, a little fun, uh, little fun set decorating thing. I, you know, I was wondering what they were made of, because when she, like... It looked like, like styrofoam or some yeah, kind of, like... Yeah, when like, she knocks their heads off, I was like, what material is that? We've spent a lot of time with, with Beth Kushnick, our set decorator, so I feel like I was, like, really examining the, quote-unquote, snow, and to try to figure out, like, what in the world is in there? Well, you know, uh, you know, we we talked about this in It's a Wonderful Life, but up until that movie, and, and even continuing for a little bit, that that movie introduced new snowmaking technology for film. You know, asbestos was uh, was like a really common item to use that's for what it looked like i'm positive that's what the fluffy stuff was inside mm. the uh the snowman head but there's one in particular it's one of the center forward ones when she knocks its block off you could see like the styrofoam edge of the thing and it, it looks like more like a chocolate bunny head like ah. you know like a hollow chocolate bunny it looked like that and that's actually maybe i was hungry when i watched the movie but like that was Oosh. the first thing i thought of i was like that looks like a snowman like a like a white chocolate snowman <laughs> then then i wanted a white chocolate snowman so that's uh, funny i mean we could talk about this movie as art and cinema for a long time and and its impact but i you know as a christmas movie i'm really curious what your feelings on this are because it's only about a third of the movie about a third of the yeah. movie is spent in the christmas section and i and that is that actually true because see i would have said even less it's like 25 minutes of the movie so it's a little okay. bit less than the third if the movie is about an hour and 40 minutes and i think there's 20 between 25 and 30 minutes in the christmas section how do i feel i mean i feel okay so are we get into is this a christmas movie I, I think so i think so i mean I, I i'd like to play do you want me to play that clip i mean we played it in the deck the halls as the movie coming up i know you i know your mom heart has a trouble with her crying i hate the crying <laughs> you can play it but... you can't do anything like you do in st louis oh no darling you're wrong no no new york is a wonderful town everybody dreams about going there but we're luckier than lots of families because we're really going Wait till you see the sign of home we're going to have. And the loads and loads of friends we'll make. Wonderful friends. But the main thing, Tootie, is that we're all going to be together. Just like we've always been. That's what really counts. We could be happy anywhere as long as we're together. If you can get past her hyperventilating crying <laughs> th this idea of we can get through anything because we'll be together you know is a powerful message about family which is definitely one of our criteria for a christmas movie absolutely oh, and and just when you added on to the scene before uh well i'll play this scene this is this is my argument right here that that scene and then this scene where she is with uh with uh john truitt so i think when she's with john truitt and uh, he's asked her to marry him we have the scene together 
gosh, the time we've wasted. Say, do you realize I might have lost you? Three more days, you'd have been gone. Let's not even think about it. We might never have seen each other again. I kept telling myself that even if I did go away, we'd find some way to be together. But I never really believed it. When you go to New York, it'll be with your husband. <laughs> and your folks can show us a town, meet us at the station. Let's go in and tell them now. Oh, no, not tonight. I mean, I'd, I'd rather just the two of us knew about it tonight. Uh, man, when he says the time we've wasted, that just cut right to me. And it just isolated in my brain as something that I feel like we all feel from time to time, especially when it comes to matters of the heart. I let's see. I wanted to back up a little bit to the crying of Tootie there, because I feel like the only reason why I can take the crying stuff is because of your trivia fact that you shared about how Margaret herself really prided herself on being this amazing crier. That whole thing with having like a contest with other kiddo, (laughs) it's the only reason why I can deal with it. She's really good at it. She's really good at it. She is, but I wish they just turned down the sound just a little bit, because you can like barely hear Judy like getting her words out because she's like... (laughs) <laughs> over the top of it i'm like quit it for, for those that don't know what we're talking about let me read this is a quote that margaret o'brien gave years later about her ability to cry when she was a youngster on camera uh she says i was in a contest with june allison on the mgm lot who was the best crier around because june cried in a lot of her movies and i wanted to win that contest for being the best crier uh, it goes on to say that her mother uh, margaret's mother suggested that the makeup man could just add false tears onto her face knowing that that would get margaret's ire up she goes but june is such a great great actress she always can cry and cue like she doesn't need the makeup man come in place fake fake tears on her uh margaret's reaction is uh well i thought i'm not letting her win this contest and i started to cry the notes the production notes note how it was one of her skills also that she was a total scamp she used to screw with the uh, props people on set and she used to raise all sorts all sorts of mischief but her her crying ability was definitely something she prided herself on so that whole other portion about how there was another kid who could have taken her place because of the salary dispute portion Mm. holy smokes that one was crazy i was reading that one out loud to jack and he was like dying he was like what his little face though like he was like oh like he could not believe this and i was like yeah can you believe that happened Margaret's mother goes to MGM because she had, like I said, she had been working. She was a, she was an asset for MGM Studios. So uh, as this movie is approaching and getting ready to shoot, her mother tries to squeeze MGM for more money and, and says they're going to withhold her. So the studio, in a counter maneuver, starts to prep this other actress, Sharon McManus, who is the daughter of one of the props people on set. They start fitting her for a costume. They're really putting a show onto it. Uh, Margaret's mother doesn't blink, though, and the studio ultimately capitulates, gives Margaret more money, and Margaret obviously takes the role of 2D. So the dad was actually a studio electrician and was like up on the catwalk and intentionally drops a heavy lighting instrument from the catwalk to the soundstage floor and like barely misses O'Brien. He is so messed up in his mind at this point. So confused. So just like driven to like doing such an extreme thing. Attempted murder. He's actually admitted to a mental institution. I'm just floored by the entire thing i mean no yeah i mean bravo and tlc i feel like they made a whole subgenre out of like stage moms <laughs> yes, and dads yes. but i can't remember any of them trying to drop electrical equipment on any of the kids heads competition it heads. reminded me more of the texas cheerleader mom <laughs> all that funny. stuff you know right, the yeah. attempted murder stuff like i mean just it was just so extreme this set between that and then judy not really being into lucille at all and being like angry with her i feel like there would have been a lot of stuff going on on this set like i feel like the word that comes to mind is like frothy like everybody's like "Ah!" like stuff is just going on the kind of film set that four different books all come out within the next two years after it's uh, finished because everyone's got their own stories to tell yeah so let's get back to christmas time though and so those two clips together this idea that life is short and we need to make the most of it um, but also, let's just have this time together tonight 
And then 2D and Esther talking about no matter what happens, we'll be a family. We'll get through it together is the Christmas thrust for me when you combine it with the Christmas miracle aspect of Papa Smith changing his mind and keeping the family in St. Louis. That's my argument. That's my argument for the Christmas movie aspect of this film. Okay, so I agree with you. I think that there there is an absolute like feeling that the family comes together and that's what sort of makes you feel like this and it's really the dad. I mean, let's be real, it's really the dad. But if you take him as like the Charlie Brown of it all, um, and so he's maybe the his change of mind here of, of how to look at everything is what sort of magnetizes the whole group to kind of suck together around the Christmas tree. Now that is like and when he has that transformation, it's important because there's no dialogue. He wa- he watches yes. his daughter have his meltdown. And then there's basically, I think it's two or three minutes of just instrumental music and just watching the dad do the calculation in his head and have this transformation completely silently. It's all just his body action. It's all just his face acting where he has this transformation to make this decision. Now you're not a you're not a dad of daughters, but do you do you find yourself that that like I don't know if this is a daughter thing, but but where dads can just be so won over, but I, I think especially by daughters. But I think so for sure. I, I think there is a particular. Uh, I mean, Tom can definitely win me over without too too much work. Um, but yeah, no, I think there is a. I think the reason it's such a trope is because it's such a real thing. The overwhelming power, of, especially the daughters of different ages, right? It's not like Esther and Rose or Agnes and Tootie. It's one of the older ones and one of the younger ones having to come together and console each other. Because you listen to that clip, Esther is really trying to convince herself as much as she's trying to convince Tootie that New York is going to be great. Right. Because she knows she's leaving her fiance, this guy that she has chased, you know, for the last six months and has finally gotten and is in love with and is going to marry. And now she's packing to leave for New York. So she's she's really convincing herself as much as she's convincing her little sister that New York is going to be wonderful and they're going to be together and they're going to be a family and it'll be okay. Yeah, I think that's just too much daughter for for papa smith here again he's got the mushy inside he's an m&m he's got a hard crunchy shell and he's all mush inside and yeah i i I think there's no way he can stand up against that is this a christmas movie i think that it's all because it, it it all ends at christmas basically it all has this big crescendo to to the christmas moment then i think it's okay that we're not in christmas the whole time because it's okay that we were building and building for the miracle to happen on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, if you will. So then I think that that still 100% qualifies in my brain. And and the sentiment, certainly, of family and coming together and we can all do this no matter what, so long as we're all together, that all works for me. It's it's maybe not as traditional as or, – or maybe not traditional is not even the right word, but – maybe not so in your face it's not it's not about christmas lights it's not about hanging the stockings it's not about all these things but it's about those sort of more subtle points of this building of this family and this and this moment that they're all kind of dreading and then suddenly there's this miracle and they all come together like that that is christmas unto itself you're right this this scene Especially when he calls them all down, he wakes the household up, and then uh, was—is it Wallace? Rose's paramour comes in randomly in the middle of the night, says, "I love you, and I'm gonna marry you." Like, dude, it's like one in the when morning. He, what are he's you doing? Pointing at yeah, her. like he's like <laughs> yelling at her. His it's love. It's like a courtroom scene when they it like is. point at the the guy. I love yeah, it though. It made me laugh. It was, it was so dramatic. It he's was, just it, tired it, of all the games. Yes. Okay, they have been playing games with one another since that phone call business way back when. Like. Every Everything, it's all just a mess, you know, there's right. all these gameplay and he's just done. And so for it to happen, you know, basically like right after midnight on Christmas Eve, you know, that whole thing, like it just all is like, that's what makes it like so much more exciting, I guess. I think from the moment that John and Esther are hugging under the tree and having their their moment, which really is a goodbye, really. And then you hear the midnight bells chime signaling that it's now christmas everything from that moment on is really the apex of this movie because everything comes after it when we move the springtime and the fair i mean that's like another 20 minutes of the movie but that's really just more of an epilogue this is the end of the movie it really built to this christmas moment of what's going to happen to this family uh on the precipice of this giant change in their lives honestly 
he could have easily had said, no, we're still going to New York. We have to. It's the right move financially for our family and to to make sure you're all taken care of. And men will come and go. If these guys don't follow you, there will be other men in New York. Like, it could have. We know from these movies, these men seem to come and go and you can get married like just because, you you know, this guy came into your world. and You're like, OK, I'll marry you. All right. That seems right. He did propose. So, you know, let's. Well, sure. And high society of New York. Right. There's there's a movie here where their dad is not moved and is not swayed you know maybe he feels bad maybe it tugs at his heartstrings maybe he wrestles with it but then still says no we've got to go that's what happens really in sally benson's real life like they made this movie magic where they decide to stay and they get to go to the fair that wasn't what sally and her sister's life was really like in 1903 they actually did leave and did go to new york and did not get to come back to see the fair yeah it really is kind of a christmas miracle it is the family coming together at this magical hour of the bells chiming for midnight and and all of these things all coming to a head, Wallace coming in and scolding her, his love and all of that all happening together all, I think, goes into like the alchemy of what makes this kind of a Christmas movie at the last moment. I feel like especially because there's this little nugget that people have figured out that you could watch it on Christmas Eve. And if you start the film and we'll like put this in the notes for those of you who really want to do this. If you start the film precisely at 10, 22, and 30 seconds p.m., then the church bells that toll midnight during John's Christmas Eve proposal to Esther coincides perfectly with the real-time stroke of midnight, then you can like actually have this moment when you like ring in Christmas morning with all the characters in the film. That alone feels like that people figured that out. That like I don't know how you can dispute that it's a Christmas movie. I mean, it's it's really clicking. It's really checking the boxes and and different than Holiday Inn, which featured some Christmas music. Right. I mean, White Christmas comes out of Holiday Inn and it definitely has a Chris starts and it covers three different Christmases. I think that movie failed because it wasn't about the magic of Christmas or the joy or family or hope that Christmas represents vignette style it was more just about these people moving through checking in in their lives at different holidays this movie definitely seems to culminate around that special time that christmas represents just by the nature of it being christmas there it's for better or worse it is a pinnacle time right it is a it is it is it's a it's very specific time of the year and so when something builds to it and culminates at it that still works, right? It doesn't need to have been all set at Christmas time. Right. You could definitely watch this movie and tell you the year. This movie is going to hit you differently at Christmas time. Man, I think especially if you do this whole timing thing, I'm like very curious. You you got to do it this year, Mike. I, I might. I might. I think you should. I think I might. I don't think I can because I'm always having to host a party. <laughs> but but for sure, I feel like it should be happening like in anyone's homes who like can sit down and do this should do it. And And you know what? There is songs in here that like kind of make you feel all like... I don't know, full and excited. Even even the trolley song. Like I know that's not Christmas related, but it's still like fun. Oh, for sure. And 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 I mean I picked those two, but there's a couple of songs that come out of here that Judy Garland would go on to continue to do throughout her career. Uh her singing career. I mean, she releases eight albums, I think. All of that happens after this movie. You know, that's all that's how she spends her fifties and her sixties, uh, is really focusing on her lounge act and her and her music. You know, she continued to do the songs from this movie through the 60s. These became all standards for her in her act. So, yeah, no, the soundtrack alone is definitely uh, is worth it. I mean, you can get it on Spotify. It, it's The music alone is worth something having probably on Christmas Eve, If you, even if you can't time up the movie to sync. But you should. But you I should. really feel like you should. You should. At least find a, <laughs> find a TV, you know. Yes, and, uh, just turn it on somewhere, right? Maybe I'll just do that. I'll just turn it on somewhere. And then I'll just hear the bell and I'll be like, ah, it's happening. Fun fact about the trolley song. Are you ready to get into fun facts? Sure. Let's do I tro- think we both agree that it's a Christmas movie. I think yes. we're ready. Uh, because you just mentioned the trolley song, it reminded me, Judy Garland actually recorded that in one single take. That's pretty impressive. Very. She's a consummate actor by this point, though, please. 
She's yes, got this. She's got this, right? She, I mean, given, I mean, look at look at the problems that she had behind the camera, and and again, the, the things that she was already battling at twenty two, and she still is able to do that in one take. I mean, I think that tells you everything you need to know about her immense talent. I was just having a lot of conversations about some of the different techniques used on movie sets and how to get things had to do with the movie Vertigo. But I thought this was interesting about how when Tootie was riding in the horse drawn cart with Mister Neely, the single camera sequence was filmed on the MGM soundstage in film process. The moving backwards projected screen action previously had been filmed by a second unit filming company, but they coordinated with extras in horse-drawn and motorized vehicles moving as background action, right? So the exterior of MGM Culver City Backlots set reveals this like existing Culver City foothill terrain, right? Well, I feel like that's like they actually accidentally show some of that stuff on some movies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But And it's like located behind this exterior Victorian street set. But if you can ignore the fact that St. Louis is like a flat land country, the backlots newly constructed Victorian St. Louis Street had like these like foothills, right? So this trolley sequence was also filmed on the same MGM soundstage in film process. The process plates are projected into the motion picture projector onto a rear screen and set directly in center line with the film's camera lens. The distance between the projector and the rear screen requires approximately 200 feet of separation. The film process requires a huge stage for the process projector screen setup and then this also has to include the vehicle and the actor's film action occurring in front of the projection screen all of this is fascinating to me just it was just timely because i was also talking about it with vertigo and how they were doing their like sort of outside the window scenes and whatnot Mm -hmm. so all of it together i think i don't know i just find it fascinating when they kind of figure these things out this is something that they hadn't done before or whatever you know and like look how they were able to do this and super cool caroline is uh are, are you prepping a 52 weeks of horror and thrillers watching Vertigo? <laughs> Could you stomach that? <laughs> I am way too much of a scaredy cat. So uh, just staying with the music, there is a line at the end of the film. John uh, says to Esther, talking about the fairgrounds, I liked it better when it was a swamp and there was just the two of us. This doesn't maybe make a lot of sense, but it refers to a scene that was actually shot but deleted that took place right after the trolley scene where John and Esther visit the fairgrounds, which were still under construction at that point at the Sinker Swamp. The scene was a setting for a Rodgers and Hammerstein song called Boys and Girls Like You and Me. Now, Rodgers and Hammerstein actually originally wrote that song, Boys and Girls Like You and Me, for Oklahoma, but dropped it from the final version of Oklahoma, but the song was just kind of out there. So MGM picks the song up, the rights up to the song, and actually shot the film with Judy Garland singing it as a solo for this movie. It was cut again from this movie. The film has actually been lost for that scene. It was shot, but it's it's it wasn't saved and so the film no longer exists but you could actually still hear judy garland's audio track of it that still survives and actually i listened to it actually you could listen to it on spotify it's like this little easter egg vestige of a movie that you can't actually otherwise pair up but uh yeah it just kind of hangs out there like a little bit of an antique the song uh, boys and girls like you and me that's funny. So I've been having perfume on the brain lately. I don't know what is up with that, but oh my I've been like the C- the thinking, thinking about it a lot. Um, and and so the comment about John's grandmother and Esther using the same violet essence perfume is accurate for the time. Proper ladies had used that scent for many years until Coco Chanel and the other designers introduced more modern fragrances to the ladies of the world. Only fast women wore perfume. I want to like cast dispersions on the grandma, but I get it that this is just like essence that the grandma was wearing. But I mean, can you imagine someone being like, wow, you, you, you like your smell really reminds me of something. It's like my grandma. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'd be sad. I mean, I, I, he says it with such like child. He looks, he sounds like such a little boy when he says it, but you could tell it like, is it like a scent that makes him happy? You know, like it's 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 like a good I have a line that him, I say but, something uh, smells like home, and so yeah. to me, I feel like it's like that kind of line. Like it smells familiar. It smells like I've smelled you before, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, clearly someone has failed John in his wooing department. If he thinks comparing his uh, the, his potential love interest to his nana is a is a good call, but uh, <laughs> she she shakes it off nonetheless. But I thought maybe that you line can take it laugh. just like honesty, right? Like it's just like he's just that honest, so you could really like be into that man because it's like he doesn't even try to spare my feelings he just says i smell like his grandma oh my lord that's the bar for women these days we have to be like yeah 
He said, I smell like his grandma. So isn't that honest of him? Uh, this movie was nominated for four Academy Awards. It did not win any of them. It was nominated for Best Writing, Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Color, and Best Music and Scoring for a Musical Picture, uh, and for Best Song uh, for the Trolley Song. And it didn't win any of them, but like I said, uh, Margaret O'Brien actually wins a special acting Oscar for being a kid actor at this year's Academy Awards for her performance in this movie. It lost all four nominated categories, but it did win this kind of asterisk fifth award. I, you know, I thought it was fascinating that this film is the one that actually gave Judy Garland her signature look, because when I think of her, I do think of her as like the bright red lip color and the fake lashes and just that entire aesthetic is just who she is for the rest of her life, basically. And that all came from from this movie. So bravo. There were scenes in this movie that really reminded me so much of Lucille Ball. Yeah, it's I mean, their hair color that but so much their hair color, but the 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 bouffant turn of it where it's like yeah. a three inch like wall before it goes backwards on her head there's like yeah. there's like a like a lucia ball look that looks very much similar to that though very uh, true it, it was a time but i think also the technicolor just bringing out the fire red of the hair uh, yes. also reminds you of lucia ball at this time Absolutely. Yeah. And I was actually, you know, it was funny when we were reading through the trivia and and I couldn't quite figure out her age. And it was because of their hair, actually, because I knew that it was unusual to have ladies who would be like old enough to be like getting married to still be having their hair down. Because I know that's like one of those little things like when boys stop wearing shorts all the time. It feels very um, British to me that, you know, little boys wearing shorts and knee socks. Um, but then they're allowed to start wearing pants when we're supposed to look at them as like men and I felt the same way like with the girls I was like I can't quite figure out how old they are because I know they shouldn't be having their hair down like this because once we're supposed to think of them as potentially married ladies they should be wearing their hair up so I was glad that when I was reading through the trivia that it was like yeah this wasn't right for the time at all that they should have their hair down and be the age that they are I was like ah okay that's what was throwing me why I could not figure out for the life of me how old these teenagers were supposed to be they just seem so young with their hair down. Now, is that because they were trying to tell you that they were younger? And that's why? I mean, were they trying to undersell you that these women who are actually in their 20s were still playing 16, 17? I mean, there's that line that John says, you know, we're of age to get married. And then he yeah. says, like, dot, 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 like, practically. So they're they're <laughs> younger, I think, than we actually think they are. To me, they look like they're 18, 19. No, no, they say that. They say that, like, I mean, Esther's in, like, her senior year and stuff, like, starting her senior year. So in my head, I mean, she's, she's 18, you know? Yeah, I think they are actually maybe more, like, 16, 17, though. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that that line made me kind of think, and then just the way their look is. I think they're working hard to make you think they're – younger than At they least actually questionable are. right or or maybe maybe questioning sort of that maybe they're sort of less worldly 18 year olds even if they are 18 maybe they're still they're still wearing their hair long they're, Na- that's 1903 kind of the st louis 18 versus exactly. 2021 new york 18 is that what you're saying there yes that's exactly what i'm saying like like they're the 18 year olds who still haven't put their hair up and that's all you need to know oh lord <laughs> You know, she hasn't even put her hair up yet. She you don't say, shut your mouth. She hasn't even put her hair up yet. <gasps> so, yeah. So then you know. You know how that they, they're they still feeling youthful. They've got a lot of, of childing going on still. That's very funny. She <laughs> hasn't even put her hair up yet. I think you should. Uh, that could be like a whole thing. Whenever we're like, we can see somebody acting a little bit like Child, older than they are. you haven't even put your hair up yet. <laughs> you have not put your hair up yet. So don't even come at me with your long locks, with I, your pigtails. Man, I wish funny. that was a girl now. I could say that to him. You can say you don't even wear pants yet. You still wear shorts all the time. Which he does. He hates pants. He calls them light prisons. It's a whole, but I think that, see, that it's actually comes from something, as most of these things actually do, right? Yes. Everything comes from somewhere. So, yes, I agree. Before we get into Jingle Bell ratings, which I feel like we're getting to, can I play you a clip from next week's film that we're going to be doing? Yes, please. Your column today was fantastic. God, I love that line. Um, The onrushing stripping of dignity and thought from British lives. Great writing. Hey, I bet you something for Christmas. (laughs) That's convenient, because I got you something, too. (laughs) Oh. 
Darling, I don't actually have my gift with me. In fact, I've probably mislaid it, but I know I've got you something. I expect it somewhere in my car. Do you want to know what it is? <laughs> no, no, that's okay. I know you're going to look hot in it. Well, let's hope you find it then. <laughs> Not exactly something hot, <laughs> but <laughs> happy Christmas. I have no idea what this is. Although they say happy Christmas, so then I know it's there's some British biz in it. Uh, it's a very anonymous clip from a movie I have never seen before. So uh, maybe, maybe it was even a little unfair is kind of a random clip I pulled. But that is uh, we're going to be doing 2006's The Holiday, uh, written and directed by Nancy Myers, starring Kate Winslet, Cameron Diaz, uh, Jack Black, Jude Law, Edward Burns is in it. John Krasinski, a young John, John Krasinski is in it. Uh, Catherine Hahn, a, a young Catherine Hahn is in it. It's kind of a stacked cast with uh, Nancy Myers uh, uh, behind the camera fascinating i have not seen this movie so very interested can't wait to see what this one's about are you ready for some jingle bell ratings i am i've been sitting here thinking about it uh you're up first though because i did last week first. no and i'm like kind of nerved up about being first on this one i'll give this one a nine i know it feels too high like i feel like i want to give it like an eight honestly but i'm really really i'm, be, I'm feeling pushed on by the hundred percent Rotten Tomatoes rating, which true, one hundred percent Rotten Tomato rating, but only only on thirty three, only on thirty three critic reviews though. So it's not overwhelming. Yeah, you're right. I see. I think if I didn't know that, I think I would be very comfortable with an eight and feel like this is a movie that would be great to watch again, safe for all family members. You know, you can watch it. I think that that the little one is just such a little such a little minx that she makes me laugh the entire time um can i can i can i, can I help you yeah. with your ratings giving you oh, some of your historical oh, can ratings? my hands help your hands yes go ahead all right so you gave it's a wonderful life in eight way way back when you gave miracle on 34th street and a charlie brown christmas a nine each of those got nines from you just to, just to frame uh, your your thinking here and a nightmare before Christmas you gave an eight and a half so that's that's the Caroline range that we're working with inside here which feels right though I mean doesn't this I mean and to me it feels right for it to fall in that range yeah I just sure. can't seem to pinpoint exactly where I want to put it like I don't I don't do I think it's better than a wonderful life as a Christmas movie is it better than it's a wonderful life? doesn't feel like it's better than a wonderful life okay well then I'm gonna leave it head-to-head with wonderful life and make me have to decide later i think i'm going to give it an aging of all rating and and i'm going to back this with that i i mean i of course when we talk about family viewing we have to think about this in 2021 so do i think that that there's lots of people who want to sit down and and the pace of this movie would work for them I don't know. You know, we kind of struggle with it when when it is so old timey. I, I don't know how is it skip to my loo that they're playing while I enjoy, you know, the fact <laughs> that they're dancing and they're doing all this. I don't know that that totally works for the kids of today and that they're going to want to sit and watch this movie. Does that matter, so, though? Is Christmas about the youth of today or is it about the older people instilling and passing down traditions and their and this? Well, this, if you're going to get up as a family and then start doing Skip to My Lou, then, yeah, that's cool. That's a family tradition. But if you're not and this is just like kind of randomness that they're watching, I just think you're going to get a lot of blowback. I mean, if you're telling me that Tom's going to want to watch the Skip to My Lou and like really enjoy this, whether they should or they shouldn't maybe is a different question, mm-hmm. whether they will or they won't is the question i'm answering and i'm saying i think there's a lot of kids who will like kind of roll their eyes at the parents and be like guys i just don't know about this and like i don't really get it and whatever so you might get some blowback is all i'm trying to say i think as a family movie though it's safe i mean there's nothing going to go on in this movie that you're gonna have to worry about really i i enjoy the fact that someone bothered to figure out the timing on this whole thing and that you could watch it and and have the bells ring at the same time like i mean there's something about that interactive viewing that really like speaks to me a lot that's because we think of it as such a modern thing like oh the the actors or or the the filmmakers made it in a certain way so that you could do this but that someone actually sat down and figured that out and then it's more organic i think i don't know there's something very special about that it feels very christmasy so yeah and we do have the miracle we definitely don't think that dad's going to change his mind it's all for the love of the family and and togetherness that he does so 
I think that that gets it a solid eight. I'm actually also going with an eight uh, for all of the same reasons uh, that you just cited. It has enough Christmas in it and enough Christmas message and enough Christmas movie to it to definitely justify as a Christmas movie and and be a good family film to watch. I think you're right. You're going to lose kids on the skip to my Louvre uh, party scene, though. I mean, if you look at my notes, I think it's like the third one down. Uh, I wrote, uh, we need we all need more parties like uh, with skip to my Louvre dance party vibes. I really, really, really like the idea of being able to not be self-conscious and not have that sort of like, are you doing the perfect choreographed dance from TikTok this week? But just like to just let go and laugh and have fun and have everything just be really kind of chill feels like I do. I do lament the fact that we do not have things like that. I need that in my life. Well, then together with also the little kid who wants to be up with the grownups. I was because my sisters were older than me. So I was perpetually in the place where I was the younger brother having to elevate being cooler than I was in order to be allowed to hang out with my sister and her friends, you know, when they would have parties, you know, in their upstairs, like apartment and stuff. So I was 2D in a lot of ways through my life. And so when she's doing like the I'm drunk song song. (laughs) and then doing the cakewalk with i mean which is which is not aged well but is authentic to the time that they're depicting but just the idea of her and her sister having this choreographed dance and song and being able to hang where esther's friends aren't like get your little sister out of here but they think she's cool and 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 is fun to hang out with again that resonated with young mike that that was like 11 12 year old mike i i felt that a lot and so uh yeah that whole scene worked for me really enamored me 2d is my favorite in this movie by far i really enjoyed everything she was doing here 2d 2d was familiar to me <laughs> very very ill no, that doesn't surprise me at all i can but, remember uh, a very distinct five-year-old caroline getting harassed by my sister and in front of my whole family going excuse me for living but the graveyard's full as like a five-year-old and that was like hot hot zing back then and uh, i just remember my dad laughing and everyone just kind of giving me that same look as like 2d with the knife comment like and i was like i love this i need more of this fun fact for you <laughs> listeners uh when i first met caroline i opened my door she actually threw flour in my face and said you're <laughs> right. she, and, and said i killed you caputo i killed you so I, <laughs> right. I, I thought that was i thought that was a lot but now it all makes sense to me <laughs> this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to the 52 weeks of christmas podcast if you could go rate review and subscribe to our podcast at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and while you're there if you could leave us a five-star rating that would be fantastic so that you know when we go to sleep tonight we can have a very merry little christmas thank you guys for listening thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.